enjoy the wonder of this wonderful counselor. Go to the manger, kneel down, look inside, appreciate again why it stops your heart, why it catches your breath in your throat, why you are lost in wonder, love, and praise that God himself becomes a child. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. If you have your Bible with you this morning, can you turn with me please to Isaiah chapter 9. This is the first Sunday of Advent, as most of you are aware, and over these next four Sundays together, we will be spending our Sunday mornings in Isaiah chapter 9, looking mainly at chapter 9, verse 6, and we'll be taking each of the names of God that are found right there. So, Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 2. And Isaiah begins with these words, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Holy Word. Let me suggest that if you have traced your family tree, go back to your first ancestor who came to the United States and invite that individual and their family to come and join you for Christmas dinner. Now, some of you have family going back to the 1500s and 1600s. Well, it's at least for discussion's sake. Imagine they came somewhere 1820 to 1850. They have never been in a 21st century home. In the days immediately leading up to Christmas dinner, what will you be doing? You'll be busy vacuuming and cleaning and tidying and dusting every crevice and cranny in the entire household because you want them to see your home at its best. And when they come in, you shake them by the hand, you introduce your children and your grandchildren, perhaps some of your great-grandchildren, and they come in. And what do you think their first response will be? I think they'll begin to look around and say, wow. 
This is unbelievable. We never imagined it could be like this. And you show them your kitchen. And if they've had a dirt floor in those early days and an open fire to cook on, your kitchen will be quite something to them. Then you take them to the bathroom. And I'm going to quickly move on through the bathroom, but I think they'll be wowed. Hot and cold water and all these facilities? Really? Take them into your bedroom, your closet? Take them into the living room. You switch on a flat screen television and you flick through the channels. And they'll say, hold on, hold on. Let us get time to understand this. And then you show them an iPad and a smartphone and you explain Google and Facebook and how to text. And they're thinking... This is just incredible. This is wow. Never expected this. And then as you gather around the table and you begin to have a meal together, I think inevitably you'll get to the question when you ask them instead of them asking you, and you say, why did you come in the first place? What was it you were looking for? And like parents and grandparents and great-grandparents of generations past, they will probably say this, I wanted to give my children what I didn't have. And the vast majority of parents and grandparents have said that at some point. I wanted to give them what we didn't have. And here in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah as one of his major themes, says this, I want you to see and grasp and understand what I didn't have. And Isaiah looks forward to the coming of Christ. And that's where we'll be over these next few weeks together. Now, let me give you a little of the background, and we often do this on Sunday mornings, especially when we begin a new series. We take our time to look at the historical, social, geographical context of a passage. And Isaiah is known as one of the major prophets. There were five major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Those are the five major prophets. Now, there are 12 minor prophets, and the classification of prophets in the Old Testament is simply down to size. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel are larger than all the rest. So if you think back to Old Testament times, when the prophets are writing in terms of a scroll, their scrolls would be much larger and thicker than the minor prophets. And there are 12 minor prophets and five major prophets. And the context for Isaiah is this, that Isaiah is spoken of by Old Testament scholars as the fifth gospel. And he's called the fifth gospel because his writings are richer. They are filled with sublime magisterial portrait of God. They're filled with passages so significant that when you read them and begin to understand them, you almost shake your head in incredulity and think, this is incredible, unbelievable. 
And that's exactly what Isaiah is doing. Because what Isaiah delights to do is this. He reveals to us God as he actually is. Not as someone else has told us he is. Neither do we get to make God in our own image. Isaiah won't allow us to do that. But he reveals to us God in all of his wonder, and all of his beauty, in all of his sublime majesty. And he delights to do that. And that's what we're about to see. And that's why he says in 9 chapter 6, he say, or 6 chapter 9, he says this, a child will be born and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And it's those four names that we will explore over these next four Sundays. The first being Wonderful Counselor. That's where we're going this morning. Now, in order to grasp the enormity of what Isaiah is doing, Isaiah often writes what Old Testament scholars call in a style that is known as supra-historical. In other words, Isaiah doesn't only write for his own generation and generations to come, but from time to time, Isaiah stands back and he looks at and describes the panoply of God's eternal purposes, plans, and decrees, and he does it in spectacular fashion. If I can use modern-day analogy, he allows us to see time and the purposes of God from 37,000 feet. That's what Isaiah does, and he does it so well. Does he introduce us culturally, historically, geographically to his own day? Of course, but he also gives you the big picture. Now, in Isaiah's day, He's writing from around the year 740 B.C. to the year 680 B.C. Isaiah had mixed with the, what's the best way of putting this? I learned this phrase about six months ago. I've never used it, but I'm going to use it this morning. And the phrase is this, Isaiah mixed with the muckety-mucks of his own generation. I'm not entirely sure what that means, but when I use it in the South, people smile, and I think I've got a sense of what it means. It was the hoi polloi, the elite class, the ruling class, the leaders, the court advisors, the royalty of his day. That's who Isaiah was mixing with. And you also need to know this, that in the year 722 BC, the northern kingdom ancient Israel was divided into two kingdoms. And in 722 BC, the Assyrians, as you look at the map, coming over to the west and going south, conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And the southern kingdom of Judah was left. And that's where Isaiah was. And that's who he was ministering to. And that's who he's writing to here. And that's why the passage begins in this way. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, in Isaiah's day, there was an infectious fear and concern spreading right across the kingdom. The whole nation was living under the shadow of death. 
The Assyrians were coming for them. They eventually would capture them. But in those days, people were looking to the north. They were fearful. They were concerned. They were living under this cloud of gloom. They were fearful, and things were not going well. And it's in the midst of that cultural context that Isaiah writes. And what he writes is this, and this is what I need you to take away this morning. This entire chapter focuses on the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. If you forget everything else this morning, that's the phrase you need to get in your mind. The faithfulness of God. And when Isaiah begins to speak of the faithfulness of God, he introduces and underlines and highlights for us hope, optimism, answered prayer, The purposes and plans of God are not turning to ash in their hands. But in fact, he's doing the opposite. He's saying it's not that God is distant. It's not that he's far away. But in fact, he's engaging with you every moment of every day. And he is faithful because he is not finished with you yet. And so there is optimism and hope mixed in right here. Now, why is Isaiah optimistic? For this reason. And we see it, verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Now, we're going to tease that out in subsequent weeks, but it's helpful for you to understand this, that whenever you read that passage, Isaiah is crystal clear It's not simply that God will have an influence on His people. It's not simply that the Spirit of God will contend with His people and lead and guide and direct. It is much more engaging. It is much more personal. It is much more pointed. And this is why He says, and He will be called. I will give to you a child will be born, and He will be called Wonderful Counselor. No more simply an influence. No more leading, guiding direction. But God Himself will come into this world as a Savior because God is here with us. That's the point Isaiah was trying to make. That's why when he stood back and gave a supra-historical understanding, it was also a supernatural understanding. And all of that is unfolding before us. Now, having said all of that, what are the two words we want to focus on? And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, when you think of Wonderful Counselor, Please understand this and resist the temptation when you think of counselor to think of Dr. Phil sitting down having a heart-to-heart conversation because the difficulty with that imagery is this, that what we end up doing, and there's many ways we cannot help but do it because we are 21st century people. And in the 21st century, we naturally come to the Scriptures, we study them, we read them together, and we do so through a 21st century cultural lens. But it is always always, always more helpful to look at the culture through a biblical lens rather than look at the Bible through a 
cultural lens. But it's important to know that and know the difference. So what's going on here is this. When Isaiah writes, wonderful counselor, what he is saying is this. The name wonderful is not simply something that's wonderful. It's great. Because whenever we come to a passage in Scripture and we're asking ourselves, how do we understand this word or phrase, it's always helpful to ask, where else in Scripture does it appear and does it shine light on the passage I'm currently reading? Well, in both other places in Isaiah and in the book of Psalms, the term wonderful, it's translated from the Hebrew Pele. Do you remember the player in the 1970s and 80s played for Brazil? Pele was just a spectacular soccer player. It's the same phrase, same spelling, Pele. The word Pele appears in Isaiah and in the Psalms connected with the people of Israel while they were in Egypt. And do you remember the supernatural, spectacular, amazing, unprecedented work that God did for the people of Israel while they were what? Living in fear, living with despair, living under the yoke of tyranny, and God comes in through Moses and does what? He emancipates them. He sets them free. That's what you get when you read these words, wonderful counselor. It's not simply good. It's not simply helpful. It is supernaturally spectacular. It is magnificent. It is breathtaking. It is incongruous. It is beyond comprehension. That's what's going on here. So, when he says wonderful counselor, that's what he's meaning. God will work in a miraculous supra-historical, supernatural manner. All of that is taking place right there. And this child is extraordinary, unprecedented, because he is God incarnate. That's what's going on right here. He's the one who will what? Bring to pass the purpose and pleasure of God in eternity past. He will bring it to fruition all of that is wrapped up in here. Bondage, darkness, oppression, gone. Now, having said all of that, what are we to make of counselor? Now, quite naturally, if you follow the news at all, you will know that from time to time, when a king, a prime minister, a president is needing advice, he or she may well put together an advisory body. The advisory body is usually hand-picked individuals who have what? Who have experience, who have expertise, who have a track record, who can speak on any given subject with insight and expertise, with wisdom. That's an advisory body. Sometimes a council, because they do what? They give advice. They are counselors. And that's an image that is reasonably helpful. But what Isaiah is saying to us here is this. The wonderful counselor who is supernatural in activity, supernatural in his person, will not need 
an advisory body because no one knows the issues before him as he knows them. No one has more insight than he has. No one can give better advice than he can. It's almost as if the Lord comes to you in a dream one night and says, now, I know you're struggling with this situation in your life. This is how I would handle it. But after all, you've been struggling with it for several years now. What do you think? It's the very opposite of that. When He comes, He comes in creative, sustaining, miraculous power with full knowledge, full understanding. He grasps it comprehensively. He is a wonderful counselor. No one has more insight. No one understands it in greater detail. No one grasps the complexities of it as He does. And why? Because before the foundation of the world, he was planning and preparing to bring to pass the purposes and plans of God. In other words, the salvation of the human race. And all of that is wrapped up right here in wonderful counselor. Now, having said all of that, you may well be saying, well, Richard, I've enjoyed what you've said this morning. I'm not still 100% sure of the northern and southern kingdom and the Assyrians and all of that, uh, but I think I get it. And you may also be saying, Richard, whenever I come to worship on a Sunday morning during these days of Advent, I always come away a little frustrated because whether it's you that's preaching or whether it's one of our associate pastors, the same thing comes out. And it's this. You constantly tell us in the midst of putting up trees, putting on tinsel, getting together our plans and preparations for a Christmas meal or buying that perfect gift, you then say to us, there is one more thing you need to do in order to make Christmas significant and special. And you may be saying, Richard, the last thing I need this morning is one more thing to add to my Christmas list. I am going to 12 or 13 parties, Sunday school parties, neighborhood parties, family parties, work parties. I've got gifts to buy and cards to send. And when it comes to Christmas Eve, I will come here and <sighs> I am just inundated with things to do. Please don't give me something else to do. Well, if that's you this morning, this is what I need you to take away. I'm not asking you to do another thing. In fact, I'm asking you to do the opposite. I'm asking you to stop the frenetic schedule, to stop going to one event after another, to slow down and enjoy the wonder of this wonderful counselor. Go to the manger, kneel down, look inside, appreciate again why it stops your heart, why it catches your breath in your throat, why you are lost in wonder, love, and praise that God Himself becomes a child. That's what makes Christmas. And incidentally, how did you get on with that unique special gift last year? 
how did you get on with that special meal that could not possibly be bettered in any way? Rest, relax, enjoy, be refreshed. Let his love wash over you again. Engage with him. Slow down. Understand the sheer magnificence of the unprecedented birth of Christ. As you look in the manger, remember to look up as well and listen in awe of what the angels had to say. Watch the worship of the shepherds, the wise men who come and instantly bow down. We have come to worship him. Put yourself there. Because that's when you begin to understand. That's when your heart stops. That's when you are lost in wonder, love, and praise. When you begin afresh to understand that He is wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. He is everlasting Father. And He is Prince of Peace. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this spectacular passage of Scripture. And this morning we pray that you would slow us down in the midst of this busy season. Enable us, please, to prayerfully climb up into your lap, to rest there, to know your presence to know your grace, to be renewed by your love. For you are the living God, and you are indeed wonderful counselor. Father, hear our prayers this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Join us on Christmas Eve for our morning service at 8.30 and children's service at 11. In the evening, we'll have a candlelight service at 6 and a watch night service at 11. More details at firstpresschristmas.com.